0: Hello, and thank you for joining us on our second episode of Probably Poly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. I'm your host, Michael Haig. I write, speak, and produce art about polyamory and polyamorous ethics, as well as the larger umbrella of ethical non-monogamy. I've been a practicing polyamorous for about nine years now.
1: I'm Lacey. I'm your co-host and producer. I've been practicing polyamory for five years. So at the beginning of every episode, we're going to ask a question, and today's question is, why do you think that the philosophical perspective is particularly important to polyamory?
0: As some of you know, this is still the... Is a producing podcast before we've actually released any, so these are the questions that we've thought up for ourselves that we think are particularly important. These questions are the ones that we want to use to frame our broadcast, and even though this isn't a question anyone's ever asked me, when I go to an event and speak and say my background is in philosophy, my scholarship is in philosophy, and in ethics and applied ethics, people seem to respond to that very well, but almost like they're surprised they didn't think of it before, not like they were wondering where that perspective was. And so I want to bring focus to why this perspective is important to a community that claims to be polyamorous or ethically non-monogamous.
1: And this isn't a question that we will only answer today, but sort of delve into in every episode. I feel like it's sort of the theme of our podcast.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) probably probably right. (laughs) So I take that this question is actually aimed at sort of why we think that making a podcast or creating material focused exclusively on polyamorous ethics has a meaningful place in the existing discourse. Why is it worth doing and why does it want to take up space that other people could be using and what makes it valuable enough to justify that? And on the one hand, I think the answer is really simple, in that polyamory is often defined as either just being ethical non-monogamy or at least being in the umbrella of ethical non-monogamy. And you have ethical right in the name that we're all claiming to be, and ethical is a philosophy term. If you are trying to lay claim to being ethical... And you don't understand the discourse that describes what counts as being ethical, then it's really hard to believe you're going to be doing that very well. And in fact, if you look at the mainstream literature in our community, you're going to see psychiatrists, relationship counselors, life coaches, community members, anthropologists, and even evolutionary biologists, but no philosophers. Which is not to say there aren't any philosophers working in this field. They just haven't ended in a mainstream place. You can't find them on most journal searches. You can't find them in the books that you expect community members to have read or be versed on. And this results in a particularly weak coverage of what would actually make something ethical. For example, in The Ethical Slut, one of the books that most people of us have read, the authors describe their ethics as being relatively common sense and just sort of what they feel is being right and using their sense of what's right and wrong. But obviously that can't be the way that we're justifying polyamory as being ethical because to the vast majority of people that I meet on a daily basis, their common sense morality says that it's just wrong. So if we're just comparing common sense to common sense, how are you justifying what you're doing other than just, I like it, or it feels good, and how do you know you're actually doing something that's ethically coherent? Similarly, in More Than Two, the authors have a almost identical description, but mixed in with an approach of utilitarian ethics, which basically means looking for the most good for the most people, which is probably the most common ethical system at play in America. But it's a really problematic ethical system for relationships and also doesn't really answer why polyamory might be ethical, especially if, for example, you know I go to a family get-together and my family says, well, you're making five of us uncomfortable by bringing your partners here and being polyamorous, so you're being unethical because you have harmed five of us to make yourself feel better. Right. So you're going to have a really hard time in a community that doesn't believe in polyamory as a general rule. Only 5% active practitioners and 25% people have tried polyamorous relationships, convincing people that your ethics are on point from a most good for the most number perspective. So we need some sort of basis to figure out how we're behaving ethically and then most importantly to actually behave ethically relative to our partners because we're in, in a sense, uncharted waters. We can't rely on the commonplace wisdom of what is gonna be healthy and what's gonna be unhealthy and how we can refrain from harming the people that we actually really love because for many of us, we're getting into something that we have no basis for. We can't turn to our parents and say, well, what should I do in this situation? Because, as you all know, many of them will respond, don't be polyamorous. And so you're not going to be able to actually get good answers about how to be ethical unless you take time to study the ways in which we can treat multiple partners and balance multiple concerns and multiple perspectives and multiple backgrounds and multiple ethical systems together in order to come out with a positive, healthy, happy outcome.
1: I know from my own personal experience that before I started to think about my relationships from a philosophical perspective, I seemed to be making a lot of really bad decisions in my relationships, even though I had the best intentions. And my intentions really were to have healthy relationships and meaningful ones and fulfilling ones and make connections with people. But it seemed that the common theme was that people were getting hurt and I didn't mean to. And I sort of always felt paralyzed in difficult situations that didn't seem to have a right answer. There were often times where I thought a lot about what the best thing to do would be, but I really didn't have any tools or any framework to figure that out. So I spent a lot of time beating myself, beating myself up for not really knowing what the right thing to do was going to be. And I ended up staying in a relationship, a few relationships, much longer than I should have thinking that it was the best thing for them if I stayed, and the best thing for me, because I didn't really have any way to sort of figure out how to behave ethically within the confines of these relationships. And I think for a lot of people listening, they probably struggle with the same thing, but they don't really know what it looks like on the ground to apply these tools to their relationships. I'm also curious if you have any suggestions for people Who really want to do better where should they start what sort of things should they read what resources are available to them
0: yeah i think there was a lot of good points in what you covered, but what i really zoomed in on the most or sort of heard the most when you were talking is this idea that people are trying to do the right thing but not actually accomplishing it and one of the things that our listeners are going to hear me start to say over and over again and they can agree with it or they can disagree with it, but I think that at least in the context of your relationships, you should agree that almost everybody you are with is trying to do the right thing, and almost certainly if you're listening to a podcast about ethics, you are trying to do the right thing, and yet you feel like you're not always succeeding because it's actually incredibly complex and difficult to know what the right thing is in any specific moment or situation and actually perform the right thing. And even going backwards, People say hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's not. You still will never know if you did exactly the best thing that you could have done, if you could have handled it better. And I think that makes this sound really daunting, right? It's, you know, where do you even begin? How do you get to doing the right thing? But I think that the takeaway is it doesn't matter if you get it all right. Every little improvement is one thing that you did better for your partner, is one thing that you did better for yourself, and is worth doing. Right. So sort of the same way you think about maybe things that are more normal to people like income growth. Right. You don't go from. Well, most people don't go from earning nothing to having a six figure job. But if you get a 2 percent raise, 3 percent raise, 4 percent raise, think about how much the quality of life goes up with even just a 3 percent raise for most people. Right. So even if you can only fix two or 3 percent of the things that you're doing in a reasonable time frame, say a year of sort of work in the space that you have to do, you'll see a dramatic improvement in the quality of your relationships and the quality of your life. And so it's worth doing starting from even that sort of small space. You asked also, this is a really common one, I think, what's wrong with the common sense of ethics approach? And I sort of touched on it before, but I want to make it even more clear. Most of your common sense ethics are actually based on really good ethical theories that work backwards into the common consciousness because they're solving day-to-day ethical problems we all have. So if you ask questions about like, should I give loans to my family? You have a lot of people who've been working on that problem for a long time and the upsides and the downsides, and that sort of made it into common discourse you don't have that kind of discourse for polyamorous relationships because the variables are so much different than the monogamous structure that you're dealing with right so i'm listening to the radio the other day and people are asking the question should you even be able to have friends of the opposite gender once you get married right and they they, the host actually came down saying that you can't that it's it's unethical to make friends of the opposite gender once you're married because you'll just be a terrible cheater right so this is the kind of day-to-day advice that you're getting as your basis for your common sense and you're polyamorous. It just has no hold or bearing at all. And so you really don't have that common sense to draw from. You just have the illusion of that common sense. You can kind of remember what you did in monogamous relationships and try and sort of jam that round peg into the square hole of polyamory and see if you can make it fit. But it's always going to have those edges that keep you not doing something that's as helpful as it could be. All right, that's our time for that question. I think I'm pretty comfortable with how we how well we answered um, the question or hit the major points that I wanted to hit.
1: I think people really understand now that there is a utility in sort of examining their relationships from this perspective, that even if they feel like it's really difficult now, that there is some sort of alternate method in having healthy and fulfilling ethical relationships.
0: Especially in regards to not having to be perfect for it to be valuable, sort of how to enter. But I didn't get to answer some of the questions, like what resources would what I look into that I thought were really important that you asked as a starting point. Um, So even though it's a little past time, I'm going to steal that and say, I, I think actually for the first thing you should really look into is not even necessarily polyamorous related, but an ethical system that you can believe in, right, that you find consistent and valuable.
1: When you say ethical system, can you explain to them what you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, sorry, bad, bad habit. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of different sort of theories that explain why something might be good or bad. So uh, I did touch briefly on utilitarianism, which is sort of the most common American ethical system, uh, aside from maybe Christianity, uh, which says things are good if they cause the most pleasure for the most people and avoid the most pain or cause the most happiness, actually, in modern utilitarianism. And avoid the most unhappiness or sadness or something, or suffering. Right, avoid the most suffering. The system we're going to employ primarily on the show is existentialism, which is sort of the system that comes out of European thought following World War II and tries to explain why it's not okay to commit genocide, for instance, <laughs> even if in theory that might actually somehow improve the the world for everyone else. Because you know that was some of the undergarding theory of of that, right? The idea that if we f- got rid of everyone that had bad genetics, we'd all be healthier and happier. So even though there was some suffering, the ends justify the means idea, which is one of the problems that utilitarianism has, especially in individual interactions. Uh, that's a lot. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of theories there. Um, but uh, like I said, I would... Uh, so I, w- I would investigate... I, let's make it simple. If you like the things that I'm saying, go investigate existentialism. And specifically, there's a very short book, wonderful book, um, written by Boisvert, who is um, one of the major founders of the existentialist movement called An Ethics of Ambiguity that's only like 150 pages and really easily digestible and it tries to be an entry point into how to make ethical decisions from a uh, existentialist perspective and it's written by one of the leading feminists of all time So,
1: and if you don't want to do that <laughs> just keep listening to our podcast <laughs> yeah, obviously, right we, I definitely <laughs> think our podcast
0: will help you as a starting point that is definitely <laughs> right I'm bad the self-advertising. <laughs> Today I want to talk about consent. And while this does include talking about what consent means, that's not really the focus of this episode. Rather, my goal here is to lay out how consent can form the basis of a system of ethics, which works exclusively inside of interpersonal relationships. If that sounds intimidating, it's really not. You employ ethical systems all the time. You just don't necessarily have the words to describe them. For instance, whenever you ask yourself what you should do, and then you weigh the moral factors in play, you are applying some ethical system. What I am suggesting is that we replace your default system, which is instilled in you by a society that rejects your entire lifestyle, and which has many goals which are ultimately unhealthy for you, such as consumer culture and guilt culture. With a well-considered system designed exclusively to foster ethical treatment, and equality of yourself and others in your interpersonal relationships. I say interpersonal relationships to highlight that this system of ethics is not workable to apply to other forms of relationships such as business relationships or to the world at large. As you are most likely aware, power dynamics which are in play in the larger world tend to push in on and erode consent, making it a poor basis for ethics outside of interpersonal relationships. For example, Many people who do think that consent can make the basis of ethics will claim that we don't need a minimum wage because people have to consent to work in the first place. So if they don't like the wage, the argument goes, they are free to work elsewhere. However, our society has created a system where there are no neutral resources available for those people so that if they do not work, they starve or are homeless or both. Thus, it more accurately becomes a situation which I would call coercive consent, which is like when someone puts a gun to your head and then asks if you agree to something, and later says, why are you backing out of this? You consented. Surely, you have actually said the words, I consent. But, since your alternative was to die, and since they created that alternative to put you up against, it's really difficult to call it true consent. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, the goal of an ethical system is to give you the tools to decide what makes an action ethical or unethical. Notice that this is different from prescriptions for specific situations. My goal is to get you to the point where even if you find yourself in a situation you have never considered, you can assess the ethicality of that specific situation and make judgments that will be healthy for everyone involved, or at least as healthy as possible. What I propose is that consent, by which I have in mind a robust notion of non-coercive, informed consent is capable of forming the basis of an extremely ethical system for interpersonal relationship decisions. In order to make that case, I am first going to explain how I am using each of these terms and phrases, and then go through examples of interactions and show how they qualify or do not qualify, and how to apply this ethical lens to those situations. By interpersonal relationships, I mean to indicate non-professional relationships between any two people. This ethics can only be extended to more than two people if each pair of people has a healthy relationship of this type that forms the basis for a shared system. This system would apply to a standard V-type relationship in polyamory by having each of the individual spokes have a consent-based relationship with the pivot, and then if they wanted to have a relationship with each other they would have a consent-based relationship between the two spokes the relationship between all three of them would be based on the consensual agreements that each of the people in this group have made individually with each other. That way, if the three of them are then trying to make ethical decisions as a team they are starting with an existing foundation of consent and agreement that each of them shares and it will not function if any of these relationships is missing. This system applies to friendships as easily as romantic entanglements, and obviously applies very easily to monogamous relationships as well. Unfortunately, this system of ethics begins to break down when we reach family ethics because of some of the extremely powerful coercive forces which our culture has embedded in its understanding of family. Non-coercive is a slightly more difficult term, since I take it that most people think of themselves as trying to do the right thing in regards to their social partnerships, and that includes not being coercive. And yet many, maybe even most decisions, are made under some sort of coercion. Hopefully, with time and effort, I can make the more subtle elements of commonplace coercion more visible. In the meantime, the simplest way that I can explain a non-coercive style is to say that the mindset of the per- person seeking consent should be to want to know what their partner genuinely wants rather than what their partner can be argued into agreeing to this is not to say that discussion is bad far from it but i wanted to phrase this introduction as neutrally as i can because if i say something like the mindset should be to want to know what your partner genuinely wants rather than what they can be coerced or manipulated or bullied into accepting, then you might immediately go into a defensive position that will make it hard for you to hear what I have to say because you don't think of yourself as doing those things. And rightly so, since you aren't doing them on purpose. But we do all do them. I do them, you do them, we all do them. I just do them a lot less than I used to. But don't be upset that you do them. Instead, realize that we all have a lot to learn in order to get to a place where we do them as little as possible. My favorite metaphor for this is martial arts or yoga instruction. Since we, as a culture, seem more familiar with yoga, I'll use that instead. So in yoga, when you study the forms, you always start with bad form. You intend to have good form, you study diligently, you listen to the teacher, review pictures of the form, but then when you take the form on yourself, you're off. Sometimes you can tell you are off, and you can work on correcting it on your own to an extent. Sometimes you can't tell on your own, and it requires someone from the outside to look at your alignment to let you know that you are very slightly off. None of this is a judgment on your character. You are doing your best. But if you refuse to study, practice, or listen, and you don't take feedback, your form will not only not improve, it could get worse, as your body can begin to memorize these slightly off positions as if they were the correct position, and, Repeated use of these positions can cause injury. Not only that, but some of these forms are impossible in the beginning because you lack the necessary specific muscle strength to embody them. There may even be ugly, unpleasant, in-between forms that you're forced to practice while you build up the muscles for the full form. Finally, even masters of yoga can improve, make their forms better, cleaner, healthier, and they continue to study and look for outside advice and opinions in order to achieve that improvement. Interpersonal ethics is exactly like this. You are doing your best to be a good person, and it's pretty good. However, your form isn't perfect. You lack certain ethical muscles because we are not taught to consistently reflect, review, practice, and get feedback on our ethical system. And this is what you need to do to get the best results. And no matter how much you do this, there's always more to learn could always do better. So when I say that you are coercive, please don't shut down. Understand that I mean this the way that a yoga teacher means your form is off. You're doing great. I just want to help you do even better. Unfortunately, there are many ways of being coercive which are incorporated into our culture. Thus, most of the work required by this ethical system is in critically examining each of our interactions and looking for possible manipulations which we can remove Or, if they cannot be removed, or we can't figure out how to remove them, bring attention to them so that they can be appropriately considered. So to continue my example from above, if you want to know if a job pays a fair wage, i.e. if someone would agree to have that job because the time they put in it is worth the reward, you must first remove the threat of death and homelessness. Many socialist countries have actually done just that by creating a robust social safety net so that all of its citizens have a housing, food, and medical care allowances, regardless of if they work. Interestingly, few countries with such a system have any need for a minimum wage, and yet pay, on average, higher wages than in the United States, because workers in those countries simply won't come to work for extraordinarily low wages, like $8 an hour, because it's not worth it. Thus, when workers are given a non-coercive choice, They choose to work only if wages are high enough to entice them, and then the original argument against the minimum wage becomes sound. In this environment, it is true that it's ridiculous to have a minimum wage, because workers will simply only work if it's worth their time. If workers are free to reject working, no minimum wage is necessary. But if workers will be harmed by rejecting working, then you cannot call that non-coercive consent. So there are ways to modify existing systems to remove the coercive element and get at the actual decision the person in question wants to make. I know that's a business example, but it's a universal experience for most of us, and I think quite illuminating. Now, let's go ahead and translate that example into a common relationship equivalent. Many couples in the poly community have to go through a process of opening up which is when one or more of a previously monogamous pair indicates their desire to be in an open relationship. Unfortunately, it is often the case that one of the partners has or controls most of the wealth of the pair, even maybe all of it. And then there is the threat that non-agreement from the other member will result in disenfranchisement. In this case, true consent can be very difficult to acquire. After all, if I believe that saying no to my partner's desire to open up my relationship will cause me to lose access to my home, or my children, or both, then I'm unlikely to give my honest opinion about that choice. This introduces the very real problem of power dynamics to this ethical system. If there are any power dynamics in play, they have to be removed or mitigated as much as possible, and what is left must be constantly centered in the decision-making process. So in the above example, if the financially dominant partner creates a trust fund that will support their partner no matter what happens with the relationship, or splits their resources equally and sign binding agreements to equitably share the children, then a real non-coercive discussion about opening up their relationship becomes possible. But even then, you can go a step further, and there are certain types of questions that you could ask if you're not sure what your partner really feels that will give you some sense of if you are accidentally coercing them because of some system that they have in play inside of themselves. So, for example, you may ask a question like, if choosing not to open up would mean no risk of losing me, but instead we would go back to having the monogamous relationship we've always had, would you still want to open up? Because it may be that it's not about the finances of the children. This person loves the life that they've built with you they don't want to lose it, and they don't want to risk damage to it, and they feel that saying no to you in this case will guarantee that loss and that risk. Now, it may be that you do need to break up with them. It may be that you do need to go separate ways. But if you want to actually see if they really want something, you have to ask the sorts of questions that get at what they truly want, not simply what they can be convinced to do, at least as a starting point to move that discussion and that possibility of consent forward. Next let's look at what it means to be informed in the context of consent. By informed I mean that each party has shared any information about whatever decision is currently in play which either they themselves would find relevant and want to know or which they have reason to think that the other party would want to know or find relevant. The goal here is to give your partner as much agency as you can. Giving them all possible information, combined with removing any coercive threats, allows the person to make the most honest decision about what they want for their life and treats them as an individual rather than an object to be acquired or used by you. You may correctly object at this point that providing all this information may itself be unethical or put you in an ethical conflict or appears to oblige you to violate other consensual agreements that you may have with other partners. You aren't exactly right but you aren't exactly wrong unfortunately sometimes doing the right thing and doing what you want are not always one and the same sometimes oftentimes perhaps most times being more ethical means getting less of what you may think you want I say think you want because I actually think that living one's most ethical life leads to more rewards in the long run Than acquiring the things that you imagine that you will want in the short but this is part of what makes being ethical so difficult but we'll skip the why be ethical speech for today since we're running low on time and instead let's look at such a difficult situation and see how we can resolve it to the best of our ability so let's say that you have a longtime partner and a new partner your longtime partner has asked you not to share any details of their sex life and you have agreed now your new partner who in this example does not have a fully developed relationship of their own, friendship or otherwise, with your longtime partner, has indicated that they would not like to sleep with a partner who has had, quote, too many sexual partners, or who has had an existing partner who has been with too many sexual partners." Now, you don't know what this new partner's exact idea of too many looks like, but you're fairly certain It's more than your long time partner has had, but less than the number that you have. Thus, you know that your new partner would like to know about your long time partner, but also that you do not have consent to share that information. What do you do? For now, we'll put aside the personal and ethical questions of if your new partner should be making relationship decisions based on the number of partners. It is not your place to tell your partner how they should choose who to sleep with. Doing that is likely to be coercive. For now, we are going to assume that you have no privacy boundaries around sharing the number of partners you have been with. In this circumstance, you can provide your number of past partners to your new partner, but you must also tell them that you are not willing now or in the future to divulge partner information from partners who have requested that you keep that information confidential. You can discuss with your new partner If what they're really worried about from your other partners is whether or not there's a health risk and that you're happy to discuss the health risks, if any, of yourself and your longer time partner, assuming that your longer time partner has given you the right to discuss health risks. But of course, if you can't discuss the health risks that you are in, you should not be sleeping with new people because they have the right to know. So for most poly people, even relatively private poly people, if there is an STI or other health risk associated with uh, sleeping with their partners, they usually will give you permission to discuss that. And you may also point out that while your new partner may think that how many partners you have had is relevant because it not only indicates health risk, but also maybe says something about the sorts of relationships that you value um, and whether or not you would be a good match for them. You can note that this, at best, only applies to you. Your new partner is not deciding whether or not they should sleep with your long-time partner. They're deciding whether or not your personality meshes well with them. So the only risks posed by your long-time partner, which should be relevant, is whether or not they pose a health risk. And you could indicate to your new partner that if they really want to know all that information about your long-time partner, they can get to know your long-time partner, develop a friendship relationship, and ask them... Uh, themselves when they have developed that level of trust and communication now this decision and this discussion may result in your new partner not deciding to sleep with you because they will feel most likely that no answer indicates a quote wrong answer and that sucks (laughs) and it's sad but it's their decision and you have to give them the option to make that informed decision and in this case you've now done the right thing by giving them all the information that you could honestly and ethically give them. And if you two do disagree this fiercely on what safe and ethical habits you would like to cultivate, you may not be a great match in the first place. So finally, when I say consent, I intend to indicate mutual agreement of relative equals with no mitigating circumstances. In other words, I use consent here much like its legal definition, which as you can tell, I think is quite lacking, which is why I have to add the terms informed non-coercive before I say it every time I say it. But keep in mind that the legal definition doesn't apply if you're talking about consent between a minor and an adult, or if any party is under the influence of drugs, or if one of the parties has been deemed mentally incompetent now I do realize that you can have more relationship interactions that fall outside of the moral constraints as I have discussed them here I'm not saying that anything that fails these tests isn't moral what I am saying is anything that passes all these tests is going to be as moral as you are capable of being at that time and that the further you get from these principles the murkier more difficult and more uncertain moral direction becomes fortunately This section of the show is only 20 minutes long, and I think I am either at or over my time for today. So we'll have to save those more difficult ethical quandaries for a later time. I would love to tackle more examples, and luckily for me, as we move forward, I'm sure I'll have that opportunity. Even more lucky for me, I'll probably have the opportunity to apply this system to very complex, unique questions posed by listeners. I could, and hopefully will, write a whole book on just this topic one day, So there is a lot more information, both backing up this approach and filling in how it should be applied that you can't simply learn in a single sitting. But if you bear with me, I think you'll see it play out as we move forward and understand more and more about how you can apply it to improve your own life. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you have a safe, happy, and healthy week. And I hope that you'll join us next time on Probably Polly.